Welcome to the Cosmos in You podcast, where we interview scientists, philosophers, and leading thinkers to discuss the nature of our reality and the impact it has on our daily lives. Mikey Siegel is a young inventor and enlightenment engineer. As a grad student at MIT, he worked on various aspects of human-robot interaction at the MIT Media Lab and as a NASA engineer, contributing to the robotic systems of the Mars rover, which is pretty cool. Mikey is the founder of the Consciousness Hacking Movement, begun in San Francisco and is now all over the world. And he also founded Biofluent, a company providing tools for integrating mind, body, and spirit. In this episode, we talk about the life-changing realization that Mikey had on day seven of a silent meditation retreat, the spiritual teachers and books that have been most transformative for him, insight into what the future of conscious technology looks like and is currently being built in Silicon Valley, and finally, the steps that we each can take to use technology as a bridge towards inner peace and contentment. And with that, let's jump in. Hey, Mikey, thanks so much for being here today. It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Susanna. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. Um, As you know, I heard you speak at um, a conference and just loved everything that you had to share. So I'm excited to share your story with our audience. I'd love for you to start out telling us about your background, your journey, how, what got you to where you are today. Yeah, for sure. Happy, happy to share um, and excited about our conversation. Um, <clears throat> so I, I guess it uh, depends on where you want to start. Um, but w- one way to start is um, my, my background is, is that, I guess, of a traditional engineer. I have a undergraduate in computer engineering and spent a little time poking around at, at NASA and then did some graduate work in robotics at MIT and really... Um, was very much not just in terms of my interests um, going down the engineering route, but was very much in terms of my mindset, my perspective, my approach to life going down the engineering route. Um, everything was really about um, you know figuring it out, finding the answer, finding the right way to do things, finding the best way to do things. Um, and... Um, and as I, when I finished graduate school, um, I ended up in San Francisco, uh, kind of landed my dream job, was living with close friends, was, was doing all the things that I thought sort of according to my formula of what I needed to do, what I needed to accomplish, according to my engineering mind to kind of live the perfect life and be happy. Um, what I found out was is that um, the formula was broken. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I guess in a sense, I was, um, really, really lucky to find that out, um, when I did, because I think, um, me included, but a lot of people spend many, many, many years on that search for some set of external circumstances that are ultimately going to be their, um, their guide to, to happiness. Um, or their ticket to happiness. And I was lucky enough to essentially find out that my perspective on that was broken. And so 
I decided to sort of go on this um, vision quest to try to to figure out what actually um, was missing. What did I need to do? What did I need to find? What did I need to figure out to actually um, find a deeper sense of, I guess you could say, fundamental satisfaction, a sense of okay, a sense of actually um, arriving at the present moment and being fundamentally okay with the way things were. And I knew that it wasn't going to be more money or a better job or a girlfriend or something like that. Um, and so that that started me off on a journey, which I guess I've been on um, ever since. <laughs> but um, very discreetly, you know, I, I quit my job. I I went to India. I did meditation retreats. I experimented with psychedelics and forms of therapy. Um, and... Um, <clears throat> and I can't um, say that there was one moment or one thing that sort of um, changed me. Um, but what I can say was I, I, I clearly saw that um, there were intentional practices that had the capacity to deeply transform um, the way that I felt my experience, my perception of myself and my perception of the world around me. And, and that wasn't specific. It wasn't like, oh, this form of meditation is the answer or, oh, using, you know, this kind of psychedelic in this particular context is the answer. It was a realization that we have already created as human beings um, an enormous collection of tools that if we really were to commit ourselves to them, that in certain contexts, they really do work. Another way of saying it is that um, it actually seemed to be possible to realize a profound shift in the way that we feel, in our perspective, our relationship to life. And I, I don't think I knew that. I think that that, was, um, I think that that was more of an abstract concept for me before or something that I hadn't ever really consciously understood. And... Um, I found that, for example, in a, in a meditation retreat once when I was sitting um, and sort of, you know, on cross-legged on the floor after maybe seven days of meditation and my legs and my knees were, were killing me and all I wanted to do was run away. I just wanted to leave the retreat altogether. And, um, but the meditation practice was about essentially stepping back and back and back in perspective and looking at everything that was happening, the pain, the dissatisfaction, the desire to leave, every single aspect of it, and recognizing that it was all okay. At a fundamental level, every single part of it was okay. In the sense that, yeah, there was pain and there was discomfort, but life isn't wrong. There is fundamentally nothing wrong with life. The wrongness and the rightness comes from our perspective, our judgment. And if that judgment is seen, then all of a sudden the wrongness doesn't make sense anymore. And we can look at life as it is, as it's unfolding now. Um, and from that, there's a profound sense of okayness, a profound sense of well-being that's not necessarily an emotion or a physical sensation. It really is a perspective that's beyond that. And when I realized that that was possible, um, 
the engineering mind is still there and the science mind is still there. You can't turn it off. And so the, the, the realization was actually that that could all coexist. That um, that possibility for human beings to, to have a dramatic um, reduction in the amount of suffering that they experience could be combined with everything that I had been doing in the engineering world. And I saw that actually technology had been playing this very limited role in our lives. And so that, that sort of started me on my journey of exploring how could technology, which I had been exploring in this very limited context, be used to help people to realize that profound sense of okayness and well-being in their lives. Wow, there's I, I could dive in so many different ways here. So you come back, just to stay on your journey, you, you come back from this, um, and you come back to the Bay Area. And now having this, as you said, profound knowing uh, that it all can exist at once, the pain, the joy, all of it, and there's just awareness of it. Um, tell me from that point, what did you start to create? How did you start to be different in the world or what happened from that point? Yeah. So for me, I think for some people that is, um, um, perhaps a, a permanent change in their perspective. For me, that was, um, a temporary glimpse into something at that time. Um, but what it was, it was a fundamental change in, in perspective in all of a sudden knowing that that was possible. And when I, when I came back, um, to, to sort of my normal life. Um, and the sort of stress of normal life came back and the, and the sort of the difficulties, the struggles, the obstacles. And, and I, and I saw that it wasn't just me, but everyone around me had these difficulties, these obstacles. The change in perspective was that, um, the problem wasn't the obstacles. The problem was not the apparent state or configuration of the world. The problem is only ever in how we experience that or perceive that. Um, and that was, that was the big change. And it just diffuses, um, it diffuses this, um, the, 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 the fire, the fuel for the struggle, right? If all of a sudden we realize all of the struggles we're in are actually, in a sense, unfounded. They're sort of illusory because the, the, the two sides of them are actually one and the same, right? It's like a snake eating its tail. Um, then, so that, that was the big, the, the, the big difference. And so what, what I started looking for in terms of, I guess, solutions were no longer about changing the outside world, right? So, for example, even from a technology perspective, for me, so trying to find technology that helps people feel better, I realize it's not about helping people to change what's happening outside. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, right, at all. I think actually that's, a, that's important and that should, that should be there. Um, but for me, for what I was excited about, it was just 100% focused on helping people to change what's inside of them, their perspective. Yeah. You know, one, one great example that, that really stuck with me um, in terms of this, how you look at a problem is I heard an example, a metaphor or an example of if it's 65 degrees in the summer, we say, oh my gosh, it's so cold, right? <laughs> yeah. And if it's 65 degrees in the winter, we say, oh, it's so warm, right? Yeah. 
And it's 65 degrees both times. <laughs> There's nothing, right? If you look at it at face value, it's the same temperature. But the context that we put and the perspective on it is that we judge it as good or bad when in it in of itself is neither good nor bad, right? Am I right? Is that what you're talking about? Totally, totally. Yeah. I'll, give, I'll, give you an, I'll give you another example, right? Um, you, uh, you're at a restaurant, and uh, you're at, you know, you're next to someone at a table, you don't know them, and they look down, you know, it's like a busy restaurant, and they're like, expensive watch was stolen, you know, and you're like, oh, you know, bummer, <laughs> sorry, mm-hmm, yeah. your expensive watch was stolen. Um, totally different scenarios, same restaurant, same situation, you look down and your watch was stolen, mm, right? Yeah. It's the same thing, the same physical object. The only thing that's different is how you have perceived the relationship of that object to yourself, how you have identified with it. It's a story about that object. I spent this much money on it. Uh, My grandma gave it to me. You know, I just bought it. Whatever the story is, ultimately it's mine. It's my watch. And where does that notion of mindness, of meanness, of of its mind exist? Only in the mind. It's a perception. The watch itself is not different. It's unchanged by our perception of it. But the reaction in those two scenarios is dramatically different. And so how have you found the, and perhaps it's through use of technology or perhaps it's it's a process outside, um, that we are able to shift that perspective? So uh, I think that the, the future of that process is... Um, is as much is, is a part of this this growing trend of mass personalization. And you see it in terms of 3D printing, you see it in terms of wearables that that adjust to our needs, you see it in terms of even the pharmaceutical industry beginning to start to create customized solutions. You see it in terms of personalized medicine. The trend is moving towards um, uh, interventions that are unique to each person. So the old model was finding the guru or finding the spiritual path or finding the book or the teacher that works for you and 10,000 other people. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's still probably the most common approach. But I think that what is happening now that we have access to so much information and so many resources is the trick is for each individual person to find something that works for them. It's about our individual relationship to that intervention. And what works for your friend or your brother or your neighbor is not necessarily the thing that works for you. Um, and so if there's anything, um, the, the ground, the seed of it, I think, needs to just be A, um, a recognition that we can take active steps to fundamentally change the way that we feel. Um, and if we then and and we have to want that for ourselves we have to be willing to put effort and energy into it and if you have those those ingredients that recognition and that willingness um there's so much information out there and so many resources like the podcast that you're making and so many others that the answers are there they're all around us all the time we just have to look yeah so your your hope through creating this um, conscious technology through enlightenment engineering, which I love that phrase, mm-hmm. um, consciousness hacking. Your hope is to 
create the technology that does that is customized um, to each person. Is that right, or can you tell us more about it? Totally, totally. So, um, what I would like to so so my broad perspective is that um, we need as many paths as there are people. Where where a path is. Um, uh, something, uh, sort of a, a trajectory, uh, a, uh, a direction that someone can follow in order to um, um, move through their own healing, their own process of, of finding well-being, of peace, of, of contentment, of, of, um, of balance, whatever you want to call it. Um, and um, I think that there are traditional tools, Buddhist tools, yogic tools, uh, you know, so many that are out there that are beautiful and wonderful. Um, but when I look um, at the trends of modern society, I see that those are increasingly incompatible. Um, we are increasingly sort of plugged in to technologies all around us, but these traditional tools increasingly want us to be unplugged. And so what I would love to see in the world is a thousand, ten thousand technologies like gadgets that instead of pulling us away from this, um, uh, away from this experience of well-being that are actually pushing us in that direction. And um, one of the benefits that I see of technology um, beyond the fact that it has this potential for mass distribution and cultural compatibility one of the other benefits of this technology is that it's inherently dynamic. It can be totally um, changed and adjusted um, in real time to the needs of the person using it. So you and I can be using the same technology um, but have totally different experiences in how we use it. Got it. And so for the um, critic who would say, if we use technology towards enlightenment um, and becoming more conscious, we could become dependent on it, right? We could be, um, so for example, a meditation app, right? We can't meditate without the app. Or um, we start to utilize this technology and we retreat further alone, right? More alone and into our own world through the technology and we go away from interacting with other people. What would you say to that? What's your take on on that side of the story? I would say, and, and totally, this, these are you know common things that people say. Um, I would say not only is it possible, but it's almost guaranteed to be true in some narrow sense. Meaning, all of the all of these things will happen, but it's not at all unique to technology. The same thing is true of traditional spiritual paths. People become dependent on them. They become crutches. They become addictions. They become another tool for the ego, um, for status, for whatever. The same thing is true of food, right? We can eat for sustenance or we can eat because we have an emotional addiction to the food. So even our most basic human necessities can turn have these same pitfalls. So this is not about technology. It's just about human nature. And so... Um, uh, the question isn't, are there risks to technology? That's not a question. That's a fact. Of yeah. course, there are risks. The question is, um, can we begin to build technologies from a place of deep understanding and wisdom where we understand these risks 
and we understand these human tendencies to isolate, to become addicted, to become attached, and try to build technologies that address these concerns, that take these into consideration. I think that's, that's the question. So um, these are all just problems that we need to become increasingly aware of that we need to learn how to solve. Yeah. And I, and one of the things you and I talked about um, prior to getting on the interview was you had, you had, I had heard you speak about this conscious consumption of social media. And one of the things you talked about was that, that really resonated with me was that we have an ability to outsource mind wandering when we look at something like Facebook or Twitter. Can you tell us a bit more about what you meant by that and how you see that? Yeah, totally. So, so, um, you know, I, I have I have this this perspective on on technology that that it's it's really just um, an extension, a manifestation of our sort of current collective mindset, right? So, sort of what we think about, what we want collectively as a society. That's sort of what emerges in the technology sphere, um, and so um, in a sense, it's sort of a reflection of uh, that kind of social consensus. <clears throat> And, um, and so one of the ways that I see that happening is that, um, the, so much of the, the mindset, the sort of state of consciousness, so to speak, that, um, so many of us, me included as so much of the time are embedded in is this sort of state of kind of, a, a kind of mind wandering where we're sort of caught in our thoughts, we're, we're caught in some story about what happened yesterday or what's going to happen tomorrow or what that person said to us or why we're not good enough. And if we kind of stop a moment to think, and there's actually been interesting research on this, um, the, the research, which I actually think is, is a very conservative estimate, um, was that about 50% of the time um, we are actually sort of in this state of mind wandering. I personally think it's more like ninety nine percent of the time. Wow! Um, because to to actually not be mind wandering, to actually be fully present, is really a profound experience. And so um, I think that actually those moments when we're not mind wandering, we actually savor as some of the most important and valuable experiences of our lives. These are the moments that we spend with someone we love, watching a sunset, or you know, embracing someone, or when a child is being born. These moments of clarity, of of flow, those are actual real moments where we are not in our mind, and they're unfortunately rare and far between. But um, so, because we sort of live in this in this state where what's important to us so often is what we think about things, our thoughts, our story about reality. Um, in a sense, that's kind of the technology landscape we've created. And so what we see all around us um, through Skype, uh, I mean, through Twitter, through Facebook, through so much social media, is basically the externalized stories that people have about what they like, what they don't like, who they are, who they're not, what's good, what's bad, what's wrong, what's right. We've essentially taken this internal process of creating stories about reality and we've put it out into this sort of technology space. We've essentially externalized and even outsourced our whole process of mind wandering. And now not only are we ourselves sort of, um, this is a strong word, sort of, uh, oh, I, won't, I want to use the word vomiting. That's okay. <laughs> Go strong. ahead. I would just say um, 
sharing mm-hmm. um, our internal mental experience with the world, but now we're sort of embedded in everyone else's mental experience. So you get to know what everyone else is thinking. And so we sort of live in this information space of everyone's sort of externalized um, uh, constant self-narrative. Yeah. And so what you were trying to build, if we were, if you were to you know, paint a picture for I don't want to use the word utopia because that has judgment mm-hmm. that there's a right or wrong or perfect. But um, what what is your vision for what it would look like instead as a more evolved collective consciousness? Cool. So um, I have no particular vested interest or idea that I'm trying to push for what society or global culture should be like. My interest is in creating the tools to profoundly shift our individual and collective sense of self, our sense of who and what we are, our sense of connection with ourselves and reality and everyone else. And then from that, I would love to see what organically and naturally emerges. Mm. What kind of world do we create When we can deeply and profoundly know, feel fundamentally as an experience that every single thing is deeply, profoundly connected and one and the same, that everything is life, including us. Um, And when we know that with every breath, with every step that we take, with everything that we do, what does the world look like? And so I'm, I'm interested in creating the tools to support that kind of transformation. But beyond that, I have no preconceived idea of what the result should be. Great. And so give us an idea of what some of these tools that you either have created, are creating, hope to create, what are they? Give us some examples. Cool. Yeah, good Good question. I imagine for a lot of people. They're like, is what is he talking very about? Abstract. <laughs> what is going on here? So I'll, I'll give a couple quick examples to try to ground it in some, some different, different aspects. So first... Um, like a very standard uh, technology that just emerged onto the consumer market. So this is like mainstream consumer technology. You can buy it. My mom is using it, which is totally awesome. Um, It's made by a company called Interaxon, and the device is called the Muse, M-U-S-E. And it it, it looks like a kind of a high-tech headband. You put it on, it connects to your phone, and it's a device that essentially uses technology uh, to help you learn how to meditate. And it does this by actually measuring the electrical activity of your brain. It looks for these patterns of mind wandering that happen, especially when we're just learning how to meditate. They can be really frustrating and, and make the process very difficult. Um, and it uses sound feedback, the sound of ocean waves and the wind blowing, um, to actually help us become more aware of that mind wandering. It's a form of, you know, you could say technology-assisted self-awareness or sort of this high-tech meditation instructor that can actually read our mind and help shorten the process of learning how to meditate. And and like I said, my mom, who I've been trying to get to meditate for years, (laughs) (laughs) sent me a picture the other day of her and my dad using this thing. Um, They're like, oh, we're using our muse. You know, they don't even call it meditating. They just say "We're, we're using our muse. And the reason why they use this thing when they would never meditate is because it's all of a sudden accessible. 
Mm, right? Yeah. It's wrapped in this technology form factor, provides a scaffolding, uh, guidance, a structure that can support this learning process. Um, so there's like a very straightforward, you know, consumer kind of example of it. Um, and, and sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but how does it read our mind? If you, I mean, without going into too much technical detail, but is it on the, the where you tell me, I'm not even going to guess because I have no idea. <laughs> for sure, for sure. So the way, the way that it works is our brain, when it, when it operates, our brain is as sort of an electrical machine. And when it operates, it actually um, uses electricity, these, these um, actual um, rhythmic patterns of electricity. Sometimes people call them brain waves. And by, um, you can actually measure that on, on someone's head, on someone's scalp. Um, and by measuring that, you can actually gain this sort of a, sort of a picture can be very general, but this sort of vague picture of what's actually happening inside of someone's brain. Now, at this point in time, you can't tell what someone's thinking. You can't say, oh, they're thinking about cucumbers or popcorn or something like that. It's, it's much, much more broad. Um, but what you can begin to tell are things like your broad mental state. Are you focusing? Is your mind wandering? Um, are you calm? Um, you know, these, these kinds of general mental states and, um, by being able to, uh, and then the reason why is because, um, those broad mental states produce different patterns of electrical activity. It's really like music. It's actually very, very similar to music. When you hear music, there's high pitch sounds and low pitch sounds and the saxophone makes one sound and the drums make another sound. And by looking at sort of the different frequencies, you can get a picture for which instrument is making which sound. The same thing is true in the brain. There's different frequencies, um, and and those have sort of different characteristic um, correlations to our underlying experience. And so, so would something like this be able to track, for example, if you are having a lot of negative thoughts versus positive thoughts? Or not um, yet? So... Um, in, in certain ways, I think that that's happening not so much with consumer technology. I think you can begin to find those types of things happening, um, in more of the research space where you have more sophisticated, more sophisticated technologies. Um, and you can begin to find, um, those, those kinds of underlying qualities, different types of emotional content, that, that, that sort of thing, especially when you bring, um, physiological measurements, so beyond the brain and the body as well when you bring that into it. Um, and so, yeah, you can start to get windows like that into, into someone's experience. Because I think that, you know, we talk a lot about now wearables and tracking your heart rate and what you eat and how much you exercise and all those physical things, but the emotional part of it, right, and and the, the impact that your thoughts have on your emotions, yeah. um, right, is well-documented, well-researched, and, and there is not, in my opinion, as much available that would be so interesting, particularly because people are not as astute at recognizing emotions, right, and being self-aware that I'm curious of, of technology's ability to help facilitate that. You're, you're totally right. And, and we really live in a world where um, emotional repression at some level or another is just culturally taught Yes, from, from, from birth, right? And so 
um, we all, to varying degrees, um, I think um, we all, to varying degrees, live with that in some state of actually um, choosing, picking and choosing what emotions we like and which ones are okay yep. and which ones are bad and wrong and we shouldn't have. Yeah. And and that process of picking and choosing and, and calling some aspects of who and what we are bad and some aspects of it good creates so much suffering for us. And so um, I, I, I think actually one of the trends that is emerging right now is about emotional awareness and emotion detection. And so I think um, mm. if you start looking at sort of the, the startups that are emerging now and some of the technologies that are coming out, a lot of them are creating tools to help us to become more emotionally aware and emotionally sensitive, um, both for ourselves and for other people. And so I think you'll, you'll see that trend actually happening over the next couple of years. Cool. Are there any now that are yet that we could research online or are they still sort of more in... Um, incubator mode? I have not seen um, anything that I would recommend on the emotion front that I thought was was really awesome. Um, but, you know, to give you an idea of the, of the type of stuff that's in the works, you know, I, I just beta tested this thing called Crystal, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L. And the idea is that um, it's like this virtual uh, personal assistant of sorts, but but the job of this personal assistant is actually to, um, for a given person that you're about to email, to basically find all of the information about them online mm-hmm. um, and analyze the um, language that they use and to essentially build an emotional model for that person to help you know how to communicate. Is this person more of, um, you respond more to Feelings-based language, are they more sort of logical and rational? Um, what are they sensitive to? What sorts of things make them upset? You know, th- this kind of stuff. Wow. Um, and it's, you know, it's um, not exactly consciousness hacking or enlightenment yeah. engineering. It's a little bit uh, uh, on the outer boundaries of that. But it's a uh, – um, and, and I, I don't think it's, for me, one of the most interesting possible uses. But this is the kind of stuff that's emerging now. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Um, now – since you have a background in robotics, um, what's coming top of mind, you know, we hear about in the future there will be, um, where there'll be holograms, right, where people come up, or there'll be robots, there'll be artificial intelligence. Any insight into some of the things maybe we can expect and cool things that maybe could be or, you know, that, that you've seen or thought of in that world? I think that um, there, there's a, uh, a researcher um, from, from Google that, that spoke at one of our consciousness hacking uh, meetups, and his name is Mohammed Tarifi. And what he talks about is building the first spiritual or enlightened AI. Hmm. And he really brings up these interesting ideas about, um, uh, you know, first, this is happening. Right, it's inevitable. We will build increasingly intelligent machines, um, and they will become increasingly indiscernible from, um, you know, communicating with with other people. Um, it's just headed in that direction. Whether they are conscious or you know, those are more philosophical questions. Um, but the thing that seems to be true is we build these things in our image, um, and and. This is sort of what um, Muhammad is getting at 
which is that we have this sort of default way that we think about what a, a person is or an individual identity. Um, and it's based so much on our own collective experience. And that collective experience is really about a sense of fundamental separateness, a sense that what we are at our core is this entity that exists somewhere inside of us that is um, separate from everything else, that is isolated. And so we are building um, this, this intelligence um, in that image. And the thing that I think is interesting that Muhammad points to is the potential to build this kind of advanced intelligence instead from the deeper understandings that come from the wisdom um, that we've had for thousands of years which I feel like is a, a more complete, a more profound understanding of, of who and what we are in the, in the context of this, this reality of our, of our consciousness. Um, and what would that kind of intelligence look like? And so, um, you know, what, what, would a, what would an enlightened robot <laughs> look like? What would an, an enlightened AI look like? And, and, and is that even possible, right? Because then if you idea where does consciousness come from, is it, right? Is that even possible? Totally. Yeah. Is that possible? Um, and so what I think this brings up is this growing responsibility on the part of the people building these technologies. Um, and it's not, um, it's particularly true for folks that are beginning to move into this consciousness hacking, transformative technology, enlightenment engineering space. But I think for people that are getting into the AI space, it's very true. And for people that are beginning to build things that get closer to um, uh, um, emulating and interacting with consciousness in a deep way, the responsibility is that the creators of these technologies need to increasingly be um, grounded in their own experience. Mm. They need, not that they need to. Um, as like somehow it's wrong if they don't, more that um, we build in our own image. You know, we are what we build and we, we build what we are. And so what we can create will always be a reflection of who and what we are as engineers, as entrepreneurs, you know, and all of that stuff. Um, and so um, if we want to build technology that can actually um, create profound transformation or can... Um, get at replicating the depths of human consciousness, then the builders of that technology um, should explore in, in themselves what is the nature of consciousness? Who are they? What are they? Explore the depths of their own identity, the nature of their own being, um, the, the path to their own healing, their own well-being. I was thinking the exact same thing of that responsibility is, is such a good word. Um, and so for those who are listening, you know, I'm, we're, I'm based in the Bay Area, as are you. Um, for those who are listening who, who are perhaps involved in this world or want to be, um, how would you recommend that they, people do start to explore their own consciousness, their own being there? What is, and of course, as you said, there's many paths as there are people. But for those who are just starting in this world, right? Or maybe just listening to this podcast as they're first dipping their toe in. Um, are there books that have been 
particularly transformative to you? Are there teachers or, you know, what, what tools would you recommend that people could start to explore? So, um, my guru is, uh, is YouTube. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting for Swami something. (laughs) Um, and I, I, I just have found so many, um, wonderful teachers that have been profoundly influential for me. Um, I can list off a yeah, few, some yeah, of the more mainstream, you know, Eckhart Tolle, for example, is really popular. Um, you know, he's on, he's on Oprah and I think his, he's, he's, he's a profound influence and, and profoundly wise, um, you know, a really accessible person to go and check out to kind of get introduced to some of these ideas as someone like, like Alan Watts, mm. um, and, you know, some other folks that are, come from a sort of spiritual tradition that's sometimes called, you know, um, non-duality or, you know, neo-advaita or, you know, has different names. Um, some folks in, in that kind of tradition that I really like are, um, uh, Rupert Spira, um, S-P-I-R-A or Gangaji, G-A-N-G-A-J-I, um, is, is another teacher. Um, you know, and the, and these folks, um, they, are not so much about um, prescribing uh, um, sort of a certain meditation that you should do or a certain set of activities. Um, they're more about pointing to the fact that if you really stop right now and look at your experience, um, can you really fundamentally say that there's anything wrong with it? It may be unpleasant. There may be pain. There may be um, difficult emotions that are arising. Uh, there may be um, mental conflict or noise. Um, but if we really take it all in and look at the whole thing, if we can create the space to actually just allow that to, 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 to be, um, in that allowing, there can be an underlying sense of, of peace and well-being. And that's and that's what they tend to point to, um, and, uh, and and that's not for everyone. Yeah. Some people um, uh, like more structure, um, and I and I at times have have needed that as well. They like a particular meditation technique. Um, you know, uh, uh, I I went on a couple of vipassana retreats, V I P A S S A N A, um, and they have those all around the world, and it's a ten day silent meditation retreat, pretty intensive. And it's it's guaranteed transformation. Um, if you if it, if it doesn't work, um, call money me back. And I'll, I'll give you your, a refund. I think that they're they're actually free if you yeah. if you don't want to pay. So I'll give you I'll give you a refund. Um, but um, yeah, there's there's a, a lot of um, a lot of resources out there for sure. Um, How about books? What have been some of the most transformative books um, that you have read? Yeah, um, sort of the, the, the most, um, a pretty hardcore, um, approach to all of this, um, which is, which is definitely for a, for a sort of niche audience is, is a book, I Am That. It's recordings of a conversation, of conversations with a teacher, um, an Indian teacher named Nisargadatta, um, is it was a really important book. And again, um, um, the Eckhart Tolle book, A New Earth, is re- very accessible um, and was really a, a wonderful book. Um, and, and I really also like the teachings of uh, Ramana Maharshi, 
um, who's another um, modern Indian sage um, who had some really profound things to say. Great. And one I would add um, is um, Journey of the Soul. Excuse me. Sorry. No, uh, The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. I don't know if you've read it, but... Ah, uh, yeah. The, actually, I haven't read it. I think I read the first chapter of it, and I and I really liked it. Yeah. I really liked it. And, I, and I, again, I've listened to him also. His audio recordings um, are really good. Yeah, he's very much in line with what you've been talking about. Um, again, yeah, Untethered Soul by Michael Singer that I thought was really profound, one of my favorite books on this topic. Um, so just to add to that. Okay, Mikey, wow, this is, there's so much in here. Thank you for for your time and for your um, courage to step into this world that is um, not the norm, that your career could have gone so many different ways, all of which would have been beautiful, right? All of which would have been wonderful. Um, but But this one, I think, took particular, as I said, courage and and to be forging the way and paving the way for us all to have an opportunity to to find deeper peace and contentment um, in modern times. And so I thank you for doing that. Totally my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And I want to throw out a little little plug really quick, which is that um, if folks are interested in this whole domain of, of consciousness hacking, we've got um, a global community springing up um, in the Bay Area, New York, Toronto, Berlin, Vienna, all over the place. Um, and uh, these are meetings where people come together to talk about this role of technology. And these are meditators, these are engineers, these are spiritual teachers, um, scientists, entrepreneurs across the board. And you can find out more about that at cohack.life, C-O-H-A-C-K dot l-i-f-e great and where can people find out more about you online um you can find more info at mikeysiegel.com m-i-k-e-y-s-i-e-g-e-l.com great and will they find you on social media or is that taboo <laughs> <laughs> no I, I totally uh well more more under the the guise of consciousness hacking so we have a facebook page we have a um dormant uh, Twitter account um, <laughs> where we're, we're more about the in-person meetings. But but yeah, social media is very, very useful. Great. Well, thank you again for your time and your wisdom and for being here and, and, and look forward to all the work you're going to be putting out. Awesome. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. And I would love to continue the conversation with each of you over at our Facebook page, which is facebook.com backslash cosmos in you or our Twitter page. The Twitter handle also is cosmos in you. And of course, at our website, cosmosinyou.com. Again, thank you so much for listening in. I'm so grateful to each of you to be able to share this shared passion and look forward to seeing you next time.